institutional and systemic barriers that already exist against me as a Latina and as a woman are only heightened as an undocumented student. And yet here I am, making my parents' sacrifices count by getting my PhD at the University of California, Irvine. That was today's guest, early career scientist Evelyn Valdez-Ward, speaking at the 2018 March for Science in Washington, D.C. Welcome to the Got Science podcast. I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. I've professed my love of healthy soil in previous podcasts, and I'm building the soil in my garden with cover crops as you're listening to this podcast. I'm very excited about today's guest, Evelyn Valdez-Ward, who's one of our Science Defenders of the Year. You'll hear more about that later. I caught up with her on a recent trip to L.A. Evelyn studies soil microbes, all in service of curbing climate change. But in addition to her work fighting climate change, Evelyn also has to fight to be allowed to study in the United States. We'll hear both of those stories today. And stick around after the interview. Shreya Dervasala brings us another example of sidelining science. Since September 2017, nearly 700,000 young people in the U.S. have been living day to day, not knowing if they'll be allowed to stay in the only country most of them have ever known. September 2017 is when President Trump issued an executive order attempting to end DACA, or Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals, a program created in 2012 and intended to protect children who were brought to the U.S. without documentation from being deported, and also to help them work legally in the U.S. DACA has been tied up in the courts since then, as lower courts have blocked the administration from ending it, and the administration appeals these decisions. In early November of this year, the Ninth Circuit U.S. Court of Appeals blocked the effort to end DACA once again, and it looks likely that the administration's appeal of this decision will make it to the Supreme Court in 2019. While the courts have ruled that DACA recipients are legally protected during all of this back and forth, watching as their right to be in this country is debated in court has been nerve-wracking for many. Young people who signed up for DACA took a leap of faith by registering their immigration status, and often their families, with the U.S. government. Imagine feeling that responsibility and uncertainty while trying to finish your doctorate in soil microbes, and you'll understand what the last year-plus has been like for today's guest. Evelyn Valdez-Ward is a Ph.D. student at the University of California, Irvine, a self-described nerd who loved going to school and wanted to be a scientist. She was ready to apply for college when she found out that she was undocumented. Today, she's become an advocate for people in the STEM fields or studying STEM who are undocumented. In fact, she's one of five winners of the UCS 2018 Science Defenders for her courage to tell her story and her mentorship of young people in similar situations. Evelyn and I had a long talk about barriers to continuing education for undocumented students, how she began mentoring her fellow students at UC Irvine, and how she's trying to figure out if the right kind of little creatures living in soil could save crops from drought. Evelyn, welcome to the Got Science podcast. Thanks for joining me. Thanks for having me. So to get started, how did you get interested in ecology and agriculture and climate change? 
So I come from Houston, Texas, and my dad works outside all of the time. So for him, luxury on the weekends to take us out wasn't to take us to a park or somewhere outside. It was to take us somewhere that had AC, so that was a nice restaurant that he could afford. Um, so I never really was exposed to the natural world. Plus, it's not really a cultural thing in Houston to get outside. But when I did my first research experience in California, in Bakersfield to be exact, my undergrad advisor not only made it like introduced me to the world of plants inside the lab but he would take me to different places like yosemite or we saw the sequoias and that's when i started to fall in love with the natural world and thought wow this is really pretty and then learning more about research i was like man i could really make a difference to help protect nature and help protect spaces like these parks tell me a little bit about the work that you're doing now as a graduate student So currently I'm looking at how the effects of climate change affect the interactions between plants and their soil microbes. So tell me what is a soil microbe? So soil microbe are bacteria or fungi in the soil and they're really small, you can't see it. But if you were to take like a tablespoon of soil, there's more soil microbes in that little tablespoon of soil than there are people on earth. And that's like a really hard concept for me to sometimes grasp. Like, oh my God, this is amazing. There's a ton of diversity. There's a lot of abundance in our soils. And for the longest time, it was just this giant black box because we didn't have the technology to see what was actually inside of the soils. And now we do. And so now I'm like interested in, okay, what's inside of the soils? What is climate change doing to the diversity and abundance of these like bacteria and fungi within the soil? So can you see the microbes through a regular microscope? Yes, some of them. Yeah, some of them. Okay, so I'm going to go home and get a <laughs> spoonful of, of dirt and put it, in, put it under a microscope and <laughs> have a look and see what's in there. Um, what are you looking at? What's the connection with climate change? Yeah, so where do I start? So soil microbes are essentially our allies in the fight against climate change. I don't know if you've heard, but a lot of carbon is sequestered inside of the soil. And that can only happen if your soil and your fungi and bacteria within the soil are really nice and happy. But the more we destroy our natural ecosystems or destroying our natural soils, the less it's able to do its job in that fight. But also with soil microbes, whether it be bacteria or fungi, they can help, um, like there are fungi that fix nitrogen for plants and then certain bacteria help promote plant growth. And again, with us destroying our natural soils, then plants aren't able to do what we need them to do, which is just grow in order for them to be a source of food for us, biofuels, or just plant source materials for medicine or anything else we might need in the future. When you say we're destroying our soils, what what is it? What's the cause of the destruction of the soil? There's a lot. So one good example is you can destroy the diversity inside of the soil. When you plant, for example, there's a lot of agricultural fields or farmlands that plant just one type of plant. And that can create just one type of, you know, microbial community. And if a disease were to hit it, that's it. Like your soil is essentially done. Or just, you know, a lot of people destroying natural ecosystems in order to build more buildings or put concrete where there should be soil and then that causes later like effects for everything else. Can you describe how the research unfolds? What are you actually doing? Yeah, so this is the the funnest part is going into the field. (laughs) I don't get to do it as often, but I try to wait until right after a rain event here in California, which is a little unpredictable now that we have, you know, worse drought. But right after a rain event, since I know that those drought plots have been covered up, 
I'll go out and collect soils from the plots that have received rain and then plots that have not received rain, which would be the drought soils. And then I grow plants in them. So when I go out into the field, we usually have to wear face masks because a lot of me and my undergrads, you know, you're digging up a lot of soil and that could be dangerous for, you know, your respiratory system. So my field site is really pretty. It's only 10 minutes driving here from campus and it's up in the hills so you have to drive at 10 miles an hour really really slow up the hill up until you get to the very top which is where Loma Ridge is and so you look out and there's all these other hills you can see Irvine really clearly on a pretty day Um, but that's where the field site is and so we'll go out and we'll collect soils from plots that have received rain and then from the plots that have been droughted and usually this takes a long time because you sometimes the grasses get really really tall especially after a rain event or if you're collecting from the shrubland these shrubs are massive like they're way taller than you are so you have to army crawl through these plots and then dig soil up and then one time we forgot a shovel so we had to make do with like a pencil and a spoon and (laughs) we collected soils Um, but then after we collect the soils we then bring them back to our greenhouse here on campus and then we fill up pots with sterile soil and then a little bit of the soil that was collected from the field and this is to introduce the soil microbes that you're getting from either the drought plots or the rain plots and then you grow a plant in these soils and then you see like over time like under high and low watering so essentially you're mimicking like drought conditions for the plant see how is the plant going to respond under drought with these drought adapted microbes versus if it did not have these drought adapted microbes so what results have you seen so far (sighs) okay it's been a little mixed because um so every plant uh, well every plant recruits their microbes differently and the way that each plant interacts with this soil is very unique so for some plant species i've seen that yes having the drought adapted microbes have helped it survive drought if i were to subject it under drought for some plants it had no effect where it seemed like the plant didn't even care what soil microbes were there which was surprising and then for one of my plants in the shrub plots that i looked at it seemed that having the drought adapted microbes reversed it and it actually like it actually did not survive drought and it died a lot quicker than if it like those microbes weren't present. So what does that make you think? <laughs> it's kind of confusing, but it also shows you how unique each plant is and the way that it interacts with its soils. But also like I'm only looking at one plant at a time and it would be important to see how a community of different kinds of plants would respond because much like you know, in our day-to-day lives, having a diverse community is going to help an entire system survive drought longer than if you had, like, just one type of plant. So I'm interested, like, moving forward, what would it look like if I were to put all these different kinds of plants together, and then what would the effects of that be? I think the answer is you need more research. Yes. (laughs) Luckily, I still have three more years. (laughs) We'll be back in a minute with the second half of our interview, The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at gotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. Every year, the Union of Concerned Scientists selects a handful of individuals and groups of people who've taken a courageous stand for science in the preceding months. This year, we're proud to announce our 2018 science defenders who have vocally resisted the administration's attacks on science, thrown themselves into a political campaign to get science back into policymaking, 
bravely shared their story of being undocumented in STEM, advocated for better representation in the sciences, and launched a network for scientists to be part of the rebuilding process after Hurricane Maria. For the full story, go to ucsusa.org slash 2018 Science Defenders. Now let's get back to our interview. You have an interesting backstory, so I wonder if you want to tell us a little bit about getting into college and your story there. Yes, so my parents brought me to the U.S. when I was only six months old, and it was because in their hometowns, they both had to drop out at the equivalent of middle school that would it would be here in order to help provide for their family. But for them, education has always been the most important thing, and they just didn't see me as having a good future in their hometown in Mexico. So they decided that we were going to move. And we ended up in Houston, Texas. And in Houston, Texas <laughs> meant that the first words I ever heard in English were, speak English, this is America. And I was in pre-K. I had no idea I wasn't speaking English. You know, eventually I learned the language and I knew that education was important to my parents. And, you know, I was always the one who was doing homework for a long time and honor courses and National Honor Society, you know, extracurricular activities, because I knew college was the next step for me. And so when it came time to apply to college and I brought my college applications to my mom, the first question that it asked, and this is when it was still like a printed application, the first question I'd asked was your social security number. And that's when she started crying and she told me that I was undocumented and I had no idea. Wow. Do you remember what went through your head? Yeah, I it didn't really sink in because they had protected me from my status. So I didn't really know what it meant to be, you know, undocumented until I started asking for letters of recs. And that's when I realized, like, all of a sudden, you know, I became the illegal on campus. And a lot of my teachers told me, like, oh, there's no point in you going to college. You can't do anything as an illegal or, like, you'll never contribute to this nation. You should just drop out. And, you know, that, that <laughs> as someone who valued school as much, I know I, I probably sound like a nerd here, but as someone who really valued school and their teachers to hear that was really devastating. And so that's what led me to the University of Houston downtown where I could apply at the time I applied with my tax identificator number. And so I got into the University of Houston downtown, and part of that meant that um, I was also eligible for the small scholarship called Scholars Academy there. And a big push for them was for us to do research. However, during my first semester there, um, right before I had started college was when DACA was announced, just Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals. So this is in 2012, and Obama introduced this program. But, you know, I was really scared because it was it – was, a long application, first of all, and you have to prove that you were in the country every single day since you entered to the point where that announcement was made, which meant that we went to a lot of different schools just to collect a bunch of random uh, school records to prove your stay. And then it was, you know, apart from getting the application materials together, it's not just information about you, but it also asked, like, who did you come into this country with? So you were, I felt like I was giving up, you know, my parents' information as well. Right. Right. Wow. That's a heavy, that's a heavy load for (laughs) a young college student. (laughs) Wow. So tell us a little bit about what DACA is. So Deferred Action for Childhood Arrivals um, means that the administration gives you temporary relief from deportation. And this is only two years at a time. 
and not to mention the application each time every two years, well, right now is $495. The purpose of it is to protect eligible immigrant youth who came to the U.S. when they were children, and it'll protect you from deportation. It also gives you the opportunity to apply to a work permit. And so because of that work permit was the whole reason I was even able to do research, because in the sciences, a lot of science is funded by the NSF, which means that these are federal grants. And, you know, as someone who's undocumented, you don't have access to that. And a lot of research opportunities are then funded by that. And so because I had the work permit, I was able to get hired as like a lab technician. or I had a lot of random, you know, job titles just to do research. But I can't even imagine, like, you know, in order to make science accessible, then we also need to have research opportunities for people who don't fall under DACA, because there are a ton of people who aren't eligible for DACA. And, you know, it makes it very hard for them to navigate through these scientific spaces as well. I know you've been fairly outspoken. I saw a short speech that you did at the March for Science recently. Is that something you're going to continue to do to be an outspoken advocate? Yeah, well, when, um, so on September 5th, almost, or now a year ago, DACA was rescinded, mainly because this was an executive order by President Obama, and we knew that when Trump came into office that, you know, it was just a waiting game. When is he going to do it with DACA? And he did it, you know, last year on September 5th. And after the rescinding of DACA, I noticed that the sciences weren't talking about it. And to me, this is like, you know, science has been my community. It's where I found academic refuge where, you know, you you as a scientist, it's not really about no one really cared about your identity. It was more about what research are you doing? How important is it? And so for them to not even recognize, you know, that DACA had ended or for them not to say anything or make a statement, it really upset me. And so that's when I wrote out to, to Science Magazine. I was like, can we talk about why DACA is a science issue? And then they allowed me to write an op-ed about how DACA allowed me to have scientific opportunities. And so ever since then, I decided, you know, I think the sciences need to know, you know, that within our community, we have undocumented folks, whether they be DACA or not documented, and they deserve to be protected and people need to speak up for them just as much as they're speaking up for other, you know, members of our community. Although now I realize it's, it's a lot harder said than done since I feel like most of us are, you know, being threatened. And But my main point is, like, you know, with a lot of administrative policies, it affects the quality of our science. And we deserve to be in a safe academic community where we can prosper as scientists. In an interview, you said science is strengthened when its ranks include diverse practitioners. How have you observed that in your own life? Well, for one, in my research with diverse plant communities, you see they're much more resilient to the effects of climate change. And in that sense, you know, within my department right now, I'm in a very diverse space and it tends to be very collaborative. And to me, that helps me become a better scientist. Unfortunately, there have been um, research opportunities that I've been a part of as an undergraduate where it's not as diverse and t- usually I'm the only minority. And, you know, my voice tended to be shut down. And so it was really hard for me to exchange ideas with other scientists because I didn't feel like I was an equal to them. So I know you're very committed to mentoring students and particularly undocumented students. Tell me a little bit about that and what advice or encouragement you would give to other students with DACA status. So... Currently in my lab, I have the advantage of working at UCI where we have a very diverse undergraduate student population. So the students that end up coming into my lab 
we're a very diverse team. And it's always really interesting because, you know, when they first come in, I tell them, okay, your first, you know, few months here are going to be you volunteer on a bunch of different projects, but know that at the end, I'm going to ask you, what questions do you have and how would you like to answer them? And the only requirement is that it has to be plant soil microbe related. And I always become so surprised at the things that I bring back to me because I'm like, oh, I've never thought of that. One student came back to me and told me, you know, well, what would happen if plants got hit with a heat wave? What happens to them after that? I was like, oh, I think, you know, certain people have looked at that, but not a lot. And in the context of plants and soil micros, people certainly have looked at it. And then another student talked about plant defense for like plants um, try to defend themselves against a lot of insects that will eat on to the plants. And so she said, well, do the microbes affect the way that plants defend themselves against herbivores and insects. And I was like, I've never thought of that. And I would have never experienced that if I didn't have this diverse lab group because they all have their different experiences and they all experience, you know, their life on campus in different ways. And I feel like it makes them see these questions in a different scope. And so every time they come back to me, I'm always really surprised at what they bring. And and part of them working in my lab is it's not just, I'm not just going to make them do grunt work because I don't I don't like that you know I I make them do their own project I guide them through the scientific process and then we talk about like how do you write good personal statements or how do you apply to grad school or how do you you know make a good poster and then um I'm also a dreamer scholar in residence here on campus with the dream resource center and through that we have developed a lot of professional development for the undergrads here on campus because at UCI we have the largest undocumented student population also the most diverse and so with that with the diversity also means like they all have different career paths and so through the dreamer scholars in residence program and the professional development that we did we did a lot of like okay well how do you make yourself competitive how do you make yourself stand out how do you make a good cover letter how do you reach out to professors or people you want to work with so there's a lot of professional development but then in terms of advice i'm also very upfront about the experiences that i have gone through not to say that they'll go through the same experiences but just you know as a minority woman in the sciences i'm always very upfront with them and tell like share with them how difficult it's been for me but also with the hopes that you know they're aware that they might have faced some difficulties because i don't want to just push them into a system and not have them be aware of what they might experience so evelyn what does the future look like for you you've i assume you've been filling out these applications every two years but what do you think the future looks like well i recently got married Congratulations. Which explains the Valdez Ward, because I used to be Valdez Rangel. And <laughs> yeah, so um, I was lucky to get a name change, and then it goes well with my Twitter handle, at Ward of Plants. <laughs> I saw that. That yeah. is really good. Ward of Plants. I like it. <laughs> yes. But, um, you know, now I'm in this whole other, you know, the immigration system is very complicated. And, you know, while I am married and he is an American citizen, I could apply to become a permanent resident. But the application alone is now $2,000, which on a grad student salary, and he's currently a um, lab specialist on campus, we can barely afford to live here in California. So we've been slowly saving up 
but that's just the application fees that doesn't even cover the attorney fees or you also have to do a civil surgeon appointment where you basically have to prove that you're not going to bring in the black plague into the country and they make all these you know questions about what countries have you been in and and that you know appointment itself here in california costs almost 300 dollars. so now i'm on this whole other layer where it's much more expensive much more complicated and the application is really difficult and on top of you know having to worry about grad school i'm also worrying about this and you know but it does give me a little bit more of protection for me to be able to speak out for you know my undocumented community and i recognize that i have this privilege and it also makes me really sad because not everybody has this privilege or this way out and i'm trying to use it to my advantage as best as i can well evelyn Thanks for taking time uh, to talk to me. I wish you the best of luck. I think the work you're doing is amazing, and the, the way that you're mentoring students is really incredible. Thank you. It's time for a short segment we call Sidelining Science, the latest cringeworthy news about an administration that's burying its head in the sand, even as the seas are rising over it. Our Shreya Dervasala has the story. How did you spend your Black Friday? At UCS, many of us were hard at work reading and responding to the Fourth National Climate Assessment, a U.S. government report written by a team of federal, NGO, and private sector experts on climate change. This report is designed to inform the U.S. public, Congress, and other decision makers about the state of science on climate change, the consequences we're already seeing, and what's to come. And why were we doing that on Black Friday? Well, that's when this crucial update was released. But despite the administration's attempt to bury the National Climate Assessment beneath the biggest shopping day of the year, the report made news. Some of its more startling findings include just how much we're already paying for the consequences of climate change. It makes droughts drier, wildfires more destructive, storms more intense, floods more damaging, and our health and safety more precarious. If you want a sampling of cold, hard economics, my colleague Rachel Cletus picked out some of its surprising findings, and I'll share a few examples with you to demonstrate just how far-reaching this problem is and how it affects basically every sector of our economy. Example 1. We'll need to spend $17 billion to rebuild Puerto Rico's electricity infrastructure after Hurricanes Maria and Irma, both of which were intensified by climate change. Example two, annual federal firefighting costs range from $809 million to $2.1 billion per year from 2000 to 2016. And that number just keeps rocketing up as wildfires are more prolonged, cover more area, and are harder to fight. Example three, The city of Charleston, South Carolina, estimates that high tide flooding that affects one of its busiest highways costs the city $12.4 million every single time that it happens. And for a less obvious example of how climate change impacts the economy, consider the lobster, whose population multiplied in abnormally warm waters in the Northeast in 2012, triggering a price collapse and hurting the local economy. I could keep going with examples. But the takeaway is, we'll have to keep spending more and more money on climate impacts if we don't cut emissions. Let's turn now to the guy who heads up the very same government that worked hard to produce and release this report. 
What were his thoughts about the report, basically telling us we're paying billions of dollars for our decision to keep burning fossil fuels, even though we don't have to? I don't believe it, President Trump said. Unfortunately, the economic costs of climate change aren't Tinkerbell. They exist, and we have to pay them, whether you believe in them or not. And instead of addressing this very real crisis, confirmed many times by scientists, the president is signing off on policies that will maintain or even increase emissions, costing us more money and threatening our very existence on this planet. It's not leadership to read the meticulously researched, scientifically solid Fourth National Climate Assessment and then tell the world you don't believe it. It's sidelining science. Well, that's it for this episode of the Got Science podcast. Got Science is made possible by the 130,000 members of UCS, and especially our partners for the Earth, the 12,000 supporters who make monthly contributions to stand up for science. Learn more at ucsusa.org partners. Special thanks to Evelyn Valdez-Ward. Sidelining Science by Shreya Dervasala. Editing and music by Brian Middleton. Additional editing by Omari Spears. Research and writing by Pamela Worth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen McDonald. Come find us on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. Thanks, and see you next time.